How Are You Feeling is recorded and produced on the stolen land of the Gadigal and Bidjigal peoples. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. How are you How are you doing? This is How Are You Feeling, a show where we talk about news, politics, and pop culture through the lens of emotion. I'm Danny Stewart. I'm a producer, content creator type, and I don't like team sports. <laughs> um, love that for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Longol Wakina, writer, activist, and himbo extraordinaire. Okay, so there's a lot going on right now and the tough times in the news and the world are going to keep coming for who knows how long. So we're creating this little space to debrief, reflect and talk about how it all makes us feel. So Danny, let's start off. How are you feeling? What is making you anxious? Well, social media is forever making me anxious and I think it's gotten worse during the pandemic because doom scrolling is real (laughs) and I spend most of my time doing it. But you know what else is making me really anxious as I'm scrolling through Insta and Twitter and Facebook? It's the celebrities. Do you feel this? Yes, I feel like ever since they've had no award shows, no parties, no events to go to, they're just kind of losing their minds a little bit. Yes, exactly. Now that they can't post pics of the Met Ball or whatever it is they usually do, we're getting this window into their true selves. And like, are they okay? Is what I want to know. You know, we've seen all the anti-vaxxers come out. We've seen Madonna spread COVID conspiracies. Oh, no. That one really hurt. And never forget the cursed Imagine video. (laughs) I think about it every day. I don't want to, but I do. I'm not sure if I told you, but I, I haven't been able to make it past the first three celebrities. Like, I can't watch the whole thing. Don't because people that you like will pop up and it just hurts <laughs> so much. Ugh. So, so many celebrity PSAs that no one really wants, no one really needs. But what I've noticed over the past couple of weeks is the increasingly ridiculous social media challenges that celebrities seem to be taking part in. Okay, so I'm going to need you to update me on a couple of these because the only one I'm aware of is the black and white challenge. Yes, okay, so we're going to get to that, but first... Let's backtrack a bit because these celebrity social media challenges, they're nothing new. They've probably been around since the start of social media. I don't know. I wasn't there because I spent most of my time being a teenager, being too cool for Facebook. (laughs) But I do recall the Ice Bucket Challenge, the Mannequin Challenge. Like these things have been going around for quite a while. And I guess... You know, in these times of isolation, it gives us something to do. But I'm 
kind of trying to figure out whether these challenges are harmless fun or if they actually do more harm than good. The tone deafness of these challenges has really reached a peak in 2020. So let's get to talking about the challenge that you mentioned just there, Lungle. Um, This is something that really stopped me mid-doom scroll last week (laughs) when I noticed these posts popping up, mostly white women posting selfies that had a monochrome black and white filter over the top, uh, which all had the hashtag challenge accepted and hashtag women supporting women. This was confusing, right? Because I was like, how is posting a hot photo of yourself and tagging your gal pals, women supporting women? It was all very suspicious and I wanted to know who started this and why. Um, And it's, there's a bit of speculation about where exactly the challenge started. The leading theory is that the challenge originated in Turkey to raise awareness of their femicide crisis. Uh, Turkey has extremely high rates of gendered violence and also honor killings are prevalent. So black and white photos of women who have been murdered appear in the news pretty much daily And Turkish women started posting their own black and white photos in solidarity as a way of saying, this could be me. But with the celebrity posts, we saw the challenge was totally divorced from the original meaning and where exactly the peak white feminism, Sheryl Sandberg-esque women supporting women hashtag came from is a mystery. And it got me thinking about what social media does to people. And I guess people just want to participate and they want to impress their followers by appearing to be socially aware. And the Black Square fiasco, which happened shortly after the murder of George Floyd, really showed us how damaging it can be when regular folk want to take part and do the same thing as their celebrity idols. And I remember just scrolling through post after post of black squares, which didn't link any resources, didn't link any bail funds, didn't link any Aboriginal organizations. And I remember just thinking, who is this for? Yeah, it is peak performative activism. Yes. And I had the exact same thought as I was scrolling through the women supporting women vague female empowerment black and white photo challenge because it seems like it's actually a pretty self-serving exercise devoid of any actual activism with the primary benefit being self-promotion for the person posting. Taylor Lorenz wrote in the New York Times that influencers and celebrities love these types of challenges because they don't require actual advocacy, which might alienate certain factions of their fan base. I thought that was pretty telling. Basically, it's all PR, baby. Yeah, 100%. This is 
so much like when we were at the height of this, you know, the May-June Black Lives Matter resurgence, right? Like, so many people were tagging five friends in a story. Like, oh, tag five friends to show you're in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And so many people were reposting them to their stories and tagging five friends. And I was like, what does this actually accomplish? Like... Do you want a pat on the back for being like, oh no, maybe black people shouldn't be murdered? Yeah. So, like, I fully understand where you're coming from. And I feel like this is just such a huge symptom of celebrity culture in general and our obsession with looking to them as cultural leaders when in reality they're not really qualified to be those things most of Mm. the time and what you said about them not wanting to alienate certain factions of their fan bases is just you know one of the most like frustrating things i find about celebrities in general and why i don't buy into praising you know influences or celebrities for being woke because they only do it to a certain extent like they only do it to a degree in which the majority of their following will still stay on board it's a decision where they're weighing up whether or not it's better for them in a PR sense to take part or not take part because they want to be seen as being part of like the mainstream culture. And I don't know, I'm in two minds about it. Like as bad as these rich white women looked posting a hot photo of themselves and then tagging their rich white women friends to do the same, The challenge was empowering for a lot of women and folk from marginalized communities. One of the challenges that has been going around in the past few weeks is the pass the brush challenge. Have you seen that one? Oh my God, yes. Yeah. I have seen just so many gorgeous iterations like celebrating specifically black women in the South Pacific. Like, one of my friends started one of those challenges. She noticed that a lot of, you know, South Pacific women in these TikToks weren't representative of Pacific Islanders in general. You know, they tended to be light-skinned or Polynesian. And, you know, being a lot more close to Eurocentric standards of beauty. So she reached out to all these other dark-skinned women with, like, 4C hair and then did their own iteration. And I thought that is so amazing. So, yeah, like, I fully get where you're coming from. Yeah, so beautiful. I saw so many iterations uh, that were created by First Nations women all around the world where they would swipe the brush over the lens to reveal themselves in traditional dress. And it was just beautiful, wholesome, empowering, the kind of content that we need in this world uh so i guess are these challenges like a good or a bad thing it's very complicated and circumstantial but i think um the thing that made me kind of anxious when it came to these challenges was apart from taking away from 
the actual activism that's going on. They also, I think, revealed to a certain extent the herd mentality that social media creates. And I feel like that kind of social media herd mentality kills our ability to think critically. How many people posted this selfie of themselves and put hashtag women supporting women and thought that was them being a feminist? Because really, what you're saying when you post a photo of yourself and you tag your friends to the same is you're not saying that you support all women and all non-binary folk. You're saying I'm supporting women like me. So yeah, I just thought it was really interesting how many people just jumped onto the trend and just didn't think about it very much. Yeah, I, oh my God, that's something that's been making me anxious for years now. (laughs) Like just the complete lack of critical thought in pretty much every online space I've been in. You know, and it's, like, it's really distressing when, like you said, a lot of these challenges end up mudding the waters of movements that are already picking up a really important momentum. My anxieties with this situation are actually more towards the way corporations co-opt these movements or quote-unquote movements and like you know I personally kind of perceive celebrities to be in the same vein as corporations in the context of the power they wield in society and I've noticed that with the whole Black Lives Matter resurgence in the global zeitgeist there've been so many calls by celebrities to defund the police. And that's just one example of many where a lot of people in power co-opt certain parts of radical movements and try to water it down so it doesn't dismantle them because they are complicit in perpetuating those systems of oppression. So, like, defund the police is just a diet version of abolish the police. So when we're talking about abolition, we're talking about getting rid of, like, inherently racist, inherently white supremacist, inherently violent structures and institutions. But here come a lot of rich white people that benefit from said institutions, and they say, oh, we don't mean get rid of it. We just want to defund it. And that way of appeasing everyone, like you said, to make sure that they don't alienate a massive faction of their fan base is just a way of de-radicalizing movements and not holding anything accountable, you know? It's just like saying, oh, we're not going to give billions to the police budget. We'll only give hundreds of millions. (laughs) And it's... uh, So, yeah... Yeah, it's really frustrating. And it's like, we can't expect all of these celebrities to lead the revolution. They're not qualified to a lot of the time. They are often doing more harm than good. And that is incredibly frustrating. 
But at the same time, I don't want to discount the important role that social media has played in mobilizing people to get out and protest, to donate and educate themselves. And speaking of protests, Longall, why don't we move on to what's making you anxious right now? Okay, um, I've been incredibly anxious just for the past week or so because not this past Tuesday, but the Tuesday before, there was a Black Lives Matter protest that was organized to go ahead in Sydney. So this was on the Tuesday the 28th of um, July, and over the weekend, the was it the Supreme Court or the High Court? I'm not sure. Just, yeah, the Supreme Court ruled that the protest would be illegal. And this was politically motivated, racially motivated. They're allowing massive shopping centers to go opened and unchecked where people are not practicing social distancing and the only measures they are taking are putting an announcement over the PA system every 30 seconds. Whereas when a group of people are trying to protest the murder of David Dungay Jr. by correctional officers, it's suddenly deemed a public safety hazard, when in reality, we already had a COVID safe team put together. We already had measures in place to track everyone. We There had been forms sent out saying, look, just check in your details. And if anyone contracts COVID, then we'll contact everyone that's been to the protest. All safety me- measures were taken, yet the Supreme Court said, no, you know, this is illegal. So the protest was scheduled to go ahead anyway because, you know, black deaths in custody is just as much, you know, an epidemic and just as much an issue as COVID-19 is. And I was one of the people that went as part of a contingent to show support for the First Nations families that were going to be there. What's making me anxious personally is the way the New South Wales police escalated in that particular situation. I'm an activist that's been going to protests and rallies and marches for the past four years. So I have had my fair share of experiences dealing with cops and I have never in those four years experienced the sort of escalation in police conduct that I witnessed that Tuesday. And the rally was scheduled to start at 12 p.m. And a whole bunch of us arrived there an hour early just to make sure things were okay, things were safe. The COVID safe team had arrived early to set up a table to hand out free sanitizers and face masks and at 11 30 we started making our way into the domain which is a massive park we had taken all the steps to be covid safe and then word started spreading that multiple entrances to the domain had been closed off by the police And in hindsight, I realized it was because the New South Wales police wanted to keep a very strict eye on how many people entered the domain for the protest. 
and 15 minutes before the protest was scheduled to start, it had been cancelled because the police had arrested Paddy Gibson, I believe. He was um, the First Nations organizer behind the event. They'd arrested a whole bunch of other organizers, or if they hadn't arrested them, they detained them, and it was very stressful, and they started issuing move-on orders. So they had intentionally waited till there was enough of us to make a scene, but not enough of us to really do anything because the reality was on the way in, we counted about a hundred police officers, which was ironic because they said gatherings of more than 20 people was a threat to public safety um, and public health. But there were over a hundred officers. And when there were about 40 or 50 protesters in the domain, they all kind of converged on us. And I distinctly remember move on orders being issued. And I said, okay, we're going to get moving. So I was walking away with the contingent I was with, and then I heard yelling from behind me. And a part of my, you know, brain was like, dear God, I hope that isn't, you know, directed at me, but it turns out it was. And before I knew it, there was a police officer grabbing each of my arms and two additional officers that got in front of me, one of which was yelling at me to show him my ID, and another one that was telling me that her body camera was on and which um, police station she was from. So it is very hectic, it is very intense, and I kept saying, what am I being stopped for? What's the issue here? I was, you know, obviously very, very anxious, but I tried to keep it cool. I didn't want them to perceive me as a threat or as aggravating. And then I kept having to repeat, what am I being stopped for before I was finally told, oh, you're in violation of the move-on orders. And then I said, no, I'm moving on. I'm already leaving the domain. And they said, you're going to receive a fine in the mail. So this was incredibly distressing because not only did I not receive a citation at all, I didn't know how much the fine I was paying was. And it was just a really intense experience because we were all chased out of the domain. And as we were leaving, we noticed that the police were following us. And I was like, oh, this is strange. And... We crossed the road, and they crossed the road with us, and they're like, okay. And then they started detaining people, you know, people from the protest. After you've left the park. Yes. Yes, after we've left the park. So by now, we were in the city, and we'd already left the area where we were protesting, and then people were still getting detained. I remember one person was detained because they were just holding a sign. Well, I mean, not a sign, a banner. And... We were like, okay, this is weird. So we crossed another set of roads, and then the police officers followed us again, and yet another person was detained. And by then, we were all starting to panic a little bit. We were like, okay, well, this isn't standard procedure. Like, this hasn't been done at the past few Black Lives Matter protests. And it escalated to a point where 
I measured that we had been like aggressively followed. We were essentially chased by police officers for about a kilometer into the city. And, you know, it was ridiculous because they were claiming this was all done, you know, in the name of public health, when in reality, in the domain, we were all practicing physical distancing, we were all wearing masks, we were all sanitized, and not even the coppers were wearing masks. And then they decided to chase us into the city, force us into tight groups of people where physical distancing was impossible. They kept telling us to move on even if we stopped. I was having a lot of back issues that day and when I tried to stop to just relieve the pain a little bit, I was told that I was violating move-on orders. So we were essentially chased into the city and it had escalated to a point where I had to you know, run into a shopping center and, like, up a bunch of stairs just to kind of hide out from the cops. And I was hiding there for about half an hour to 45 minutes because I was just terrified of what had happened. So, yeah, that's what's making me anxious. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that is a lot. Yeah, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. It is 100%... um that they have just politicized the COVID restrictions because if you go to any park, we're in Warang, Sydney, by the way, for context, so not as bad as COVID is in Melbourne right now. But if you go to any park right now in Sydney, especially if you went the past weekend, there would be groups of more than 20 people having picnics gathered in the park. I saw it on the weekend. And do you think that those people will like chase down the street by police officers no uh it's just such a joke like when when we had a debriefing afterwards it was you know it is very palpable anxiety around the room because this was unprecedented escalation you know like i've only been doing this for four years but A bunch of people I knew who'd been involved in protesting for much longer were also concerned because this was just by far such an aggressive form of escalation. So, you know, I'd never been manhandled by cops before, um, but it was, you know, this sounds really awful to say but I was super grateful that that's all that happened and you know just because you know as someone who's black and first nations it is just and visibly black in first nations it is just very uh it is just very scary the entire situation is very scary and um there was a petition that was meant to be delivered to the parliament, I believe, that same afternoon. And the New South Wales police held a press conference and said that anyone that appeared in front of Parliament House would be arrested or fined immediately. And uh, I feel like all this pandemic has done in the context of policing, has emboldened police officers to brutalize people 
more than they had been pre-pandemic. Yeah, they are using COVID-19 to justify behavior and extreme practices that, like you say, I don't think have been used against protesters in our lifetime in so-called Australia that I can, I don't know, think of. Yeah. I mean, we've been to so many protests together and that's never happened. You know, like, last Black Lives Matter protest, before that one, there was someone that was apprehended by the police, but that's because they were... I think, to my knowledge, I may be wrong, but they were a fascist counter-protester. That person was a threat to the safety of a lot of First Nations families that were there, that were there with their children. Whereas this, you know, we were dealt with far more aggressively. Um, We were heavily outnumbered by police officers. And even leading up to the protest, there were just cops everywhere. You know, at the time I thought it was funny, but when we were walking through Hyde Park, there were at least two cops beside every single statue in the park. Like you say, previously, I think the mood at the protests has been quite different. You know, like you say, children have been there as well. And so... Yeah, this is just very, very scary. This is the new one out from Dobby featuring Barker and it's called I Can't Breathe. Yeah. First came the massacres, then came the mission, then stole the children, then filled the prison. No wonder our people do not trust the system. Over 400, not one conviction. Shame. No justice and no peace. They won't charge. Well, I really appreciate you giving your perspective, mate, because people in Australia don't have the understanding of the, the history of police killings. And we're back. So, Danny, what's been making you angry? Okay, so if I ask you to describe in a visual way what mainstream comedy looks like, how would you describe it? Very, very white. Incredibly male. Just so male. Um, Mostly straight. Um, Definitely cis. Definitely cis. Um, Yeah. 100%. I've had the image, that image of mainstream comedy in the back of my mind and it's making me angry because this week footage of a certain comedian that matches that description through and through came out and basically it's from a set he did a few months ago where he makes a joke about the victims of the Christchurch massacre oh my god it's absolutely horrific and he 
like revealed a not really apology on his podcast. He discussed it and was basically like, oh, you know, well, I don't really believe in what I said. And like, it's just about pushing boundaries. That's what comedy is. It's pushing boundaries. And that made me so angry because I started thinking about all of the men who have built their comedy careers off being offensive, or as they would call it, edgy. And it makes me so angry, but also confused. Because to me, it doesn't make any sense. In my mind, in order to be funny, you gotta punch up, right? Yeah. So if you are at the very top of this capitalist, white, hetero, cis patriarchy that is our society, you can only really punch sideways or at yourself. But what a lot of these men who match this description and make up the majority of mainstream comedy do is they punch down with their jokes at those who are less fortunate than them and that is just so shitty yeah i completely understand (laughs) it's just upsetting you know when privileged groups in society use comedy to attack marginalized voices, I don't think it's very funny. And I was, you know, thinking about it, thinking about that, like, old guard of comedians that are basically who you think of when you think of comedy. And I was thinking about Louis C.K. And I think Louis C.K. is a really interesting case study into this, right? Because... Uh, tape came out, like someone had recorded audio in his comeback tour. He did a few stand-up shows post-disgrace, post-canceling. And he said all these horrific things. And there were all of these articles being like, oh, how could he say such things? This is terrible. But the reality is he was saying those things throughout his whole career. He was just able to effectively build up this lovable dad, heart of gold persona. So what all of his defenders would say is they would be like, oh yeah, but you know, he's just kidding around. He's a good guy at heart. But when it came out that he's actually not a good guy at heart, people had to reconcile the fact that he would get up on stage and say all these misogynistic things and was also an alleged sexual predator. And I think it's really hard to separate those two things. And what's happened since in the world of comedy is does seem like things are starting to change. But the reality is the gatekeepers of comedy and of so many creative scenes are still these, like, rich, straight, white dudes. They are the ones who are booking venues. They're the ones who decide who gets to have a voice and who gets to be funny. And, like, I'm just kind of sick of it, you know? Yeah, I'm... So on board, because hot take, none of these people were ever funny. 
I just think people are finding it very difficult to come to terms with the fact that their favorite comedians just aren't funny, you know? There's nothing funny about homophobia. There's nothing funny about racism. There's nothing funny about transphobia. But because so many victims of those forms of oppression were never given a voice, it was just given a pass whenever it occurred in pop culture, in everyday life, whatever. But now that these groups of people have been empowered with a voice or are given more and more platforms, then suddenly people are starting to realize, hmm, maybe bigotry isn't funny. Literally. And I've been thinking to myself, hey, wait a second. Can rich, white, cisgendered, heterosexual men even be funny? Like, what do they have to say that is funny? Like, what from their lived experience can they draw comedy from? I don't know. And I was trying to think of an example, and I couldn't. All of the comedians that I like do not fit that description. Yeah, 100%. And it's so funny that you mentioned that because when Ellen DeGeneres came back with her comedy special, you know, by then she had transcended the realm of being faced with the everyday realities of homophobia as a result of her proximity to wealth and whiteness and all of these things. And because of that, people were just starting to realize, "Hmm, maybe she's really not that funny. Yes, Ellen is such a good example because I think a big part of comedy as well is relatableness. Yeah. Right? And so if you're not relatable, people probably aren't going to find you funny. And that's why they have to rely on being sexist, on being homophobic. So much comedy relies on being transphobic. Yeah. So much. This like particular comedian that I was talking about before who made the Christchurch joke, I went through his Twitter, a few scrolls, big mistake, very upsetting, just misogyny, transphobia, misogyny, transphobia, racism, more transphobia. And... Oh, it's just distressing that people like that are not even on the fringe. This guy is the mainstream. He's a very well-known comedian who gets lots of festival slots, has a podcast, gets all of this stuff. And I just hope that in the future, more space is created to get rid of these people and let those who have been excluded for so long, let them into the boys club and make it no longer a club that is exclusively for the rich, the white, the cisgendered, the straight man. I cannot agree more. But I just wanted to, like, touch on something that you said about this being mainstream and not kind of in the fringe, right? Like, this blatant, aggressive transphobia. And as you mentioned, Islamophobia and just, you know, horrific bigotry. And I feel like this is a conversation almost specific to comedy because of its 
existence as an art form in the way we understand it because it's very easy to justify horrific rhetoric if you're just saying it's just a joke it's mm-hmm. like it's much harder to do that when you're creating other forms of art like like if you paint something that depicts a very graphic hate crime then that's a lot mm-hmm. easier to condemn than joking about said hate crime you know yeah and the whole idea of satire as well really comes into that and it's so intertwined with the discourse around freedom of speech as well and all these people saying well if we truly have freedom of speech then I can make any joke I want nothing is off limits but I really hope that comedy is like the last tier to come down and we see an end to this because I've had enough. It's not funny. And I've particularly had enough of edgelords. Oh, my God. You find them. They're in every festival set. Comedy festivals, not something that I can really afford. But I've gotten to go for free a couple of times. And I'm always disappointed. Because there's always, like, one or two women on the bill. Always white. The rest are just, like, these... They're just, they're just rich white guys. And... They're not funny, so they say the most shocking thing possible in order to get laughs, because then they get uncomfortable laughter. Yeah, but I remember being genuinely surprised when, you know, I watched um, Scottish comedian Daniel Sloss's sets, because he is a cis, straight, white guy. And I was just like, oh, God, another one. But then I was just like, oh, okay. These people can be funny, <laughs> you know? Because, like, for so long, my understanding of, com- like, comedians and, like, people I thought were genuinely funny pretty much excluded cis head rich white men. Because... The reality is they're just not funny. And it's not something inherent to them, if any of you are listening to this. It's just the reality of the fact that you don't have any lived experience that gives you the opportunity to provide meaningful commentary. I mean, I personally wanted to get into stand-up for a while, and my... You know, all my sets were just about the intersections of, like, all my various identities and, like, how I find humor and how shitty those things are, you know? And, like, that's my trauma to draw from. Those are my lived experiences to provide a commentary on, you know? Whereas a lot of these comedians, you know, in quotations do the same thing, they draw from those same experiences, but because they don't have not just the live experience, but the empathy to provide meaningful commentary on it, just makes it really horrific, honestly. And, you know, hot take, white men aren't funny. Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, if you are a white dude, punch at yourself or punch sideways at your peers. Like, do not punch down at those who are less fortunate because it's not it. Literally. 
Anyway, Longol, what's making you angry right now? Oh boy, this. <sighs> okay. <laughs> so, um, a tourist from Queensland snuck into the national park in Uluru despite being told previously that she wasn't allowed in because all the people she had flown in with came from Queensland and they did not quarantine upon arrival in the Northern Territory. No, no, they didn't quarantine. Instead, they were released into communities that were predominantly made up of First Nations and Aboriginal people. And... uh, I honestly don't really have much commentary on this because it's just so infuriating. I just don't understand. Why do you have to go to Uluru now in the middle of a pandemic when we need to be protecting First Nations people, when they are some of the most vulnerable people to COVID? Why would you risk taking it into their community. It's not like Uluru is one of those natural landmarks that's sinking, like the 12 apostles, you know, it's still going to be there when the pandemic is over and for a long time after that. So I just don't understand at all why. (laughs) I'm just like, I'm so frustrated because you're 100% right. Uluru isn't going anywhere. Like, I'm sorry, Karen, but you know, knock on wood, but this pandemic isn't going to be over soon. But when it is, you know, newsflash, Uru is still going to be there. Even if you did want to go, quarantine. Like, if you want to go that badly, bite the bullet, leave everyone else alone for 14 days, and then make your way there. So frustrating. Also, why? Because I understand that this person came through a tourism company. Yeah. Why are they running tours? Oh my god. I would also like to know. I'm just like I'm just so frustrated with how companies are still trying to run business as normal in the middle of a pandemic. I do not understand why Westfield needs to be open. Seven days of the week. Oh my goodness. I mean, we touched on Westfield before when talking about the politicization of the COVID restrictions and how they've been used to stop protests. But can I just say, I went to a Westfield the other day. I didn't want to do it, but I was buying my partner a belt. And a belt is the kind of thing where it's really hard to tell online if it's going to fit. So I had to go and try it on myself to try to figure out (laughs) what size it was. And the Westfield was packed. And I reckon less than 20% of people were wearing masks and it was just super super crowded and this is like 11 a.m on a weekday this isn't even saturday morning i don't understand these people like why do you have to go to sephora right now right and i like i also don't understand why airlines We're just coming for all the corporations, and I love it. Like, I don't understand why airlines are just being so reckless. Like, like Australia 
wouldn't be nearly as bad as it is in the context of COVID cases if airlines really clamped down on quarantining their passengers. But because the majority of initial infections weren't community transmissions, there were all people coming in from overseas. And I'm just so, like, I'm so incredibly frustrated. Uh. See, this would not be a problem without cap, like, without capitalism. Like, if people and governments were more concerned with the safety of communities and their populations over profits, this wouldn't be an issue. People wouldn't be having such high rates of community transmissions if they didn't have to go to work, you know? Yeah, exactly. And the insecure nature of casual work, which is a reality for most people, most particularly young people and immigrants, means that, you know, can't afford to take 14 days off to quarantine. Just can't do it because then how are they going to pay rent? How are they going to pay for food? Like, anyway, that can be something for a future episode. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think, yeah, think my anger's out. So, Danny, let's shift gears a little bit. What is bringing you joy? Well, I hate to still be talking about freaking COVID, but I've been making some masks. I've um, seen, yeah. Yeah, like hand-making them, stitching them with my own hands. And mostly I've been making them out of clothes that I no longer wear because they are from a past life when I felt <laughs> pressure to dress in a very feminine way and, I guess, perform a very extreme femininity. And I lo- no longer feel that pressure. I am free. So I no longer wear those clothes. And it's been very cathartic tearing them up to make masks. <laughs> I've got to say, it's bringing me a lot of joy. And before everyone's like, you should donate them. These are mostly stuff from like Zara and H&M. It's crap, basically. It's already falling apart. No one's going to be able to wear it anyway. So repurposing this fabric as masks is definitely a sustainable way to go. So that has been bringing me much joy. Uh, production is currently halted because something has gone wrong with my sewing machine <laughs> and I need my mom to help me fix it. <laughs> oh my God. I called my mom yesterday morning and she was in the middle of fixing a sewing machine as well. <laughs> but yeah. They're yeah. really tricky. They're tricky things. I haven't touched one since year eight, design and technology. So... It's been a struggle. But anyway, I've been making masks. And while I've been making masks, I've been listening to the joyful new release from Kylie Minogue, which has just been making me so, so happy. It's of Kylie's new album, which is coming out, and it's going to be called Disco. And I'm so excited. I'm just so here for the 2020 disco resurgence you know we saw Dua Lipa we saw Gaga and now Kylie Minogue is back with the disco the disco sounds and I'm just so 
so excited and it's bringing me so much joy but at the same time let's let's uh acknowledge that as much as we love these white women who are making these disco pop bangers that they are taking from black musical traditions and never forget that disco began in queer black latinx communities and it's it's deeply political the whole disco sucks right is super racist and homophobic it's uh... We'll get into that later. We're talking about joy. I'm just so excited because I feel like pop music for the last few years has been dominated by angst, I guess you could call it. And like, I love it. I love Billie (laughs) Eilish. But I think a bit of disco is what we need in this dark, dark chapter of human history. Because personally, I have always found this feeling of safety and like liberation in disco music which i think goes back a long way probably to my childhood because <laughs> i i had this disc man that my grandpa gave me everyone else had an ipod nano and i had a disc man and i only had a <laughs> i had like a handful of cds and it was abba's greatest hits Standing in the Shadows of Motown and this compilation album, which had all the greats. It was Donna Summer, Diana Ross, just like all the good vibes. And it was such an escape for me. I would just listen to it over and over again. And I was able to, I don't know, like find safety from all the dramas of being a (laughs) 10-year-old. And so it makes sense to me that disco is so rooted in Black, queer, Latinx culture because... I don't know, just that like thumping in your chest and the rhythm of disco music, the kind of happiness that it brings you, I think is a real feeling of like, I'm safe. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh my God, I've just been, you know, very much taken with the modern angst in pop music. You know, like, I love that so much. My depression loves that so much. But, like, I fully understand, you know, the need to, like, find levity somewhere. Like, it isn't in the news. It isn't, like, you know, they've stopped releasing films. But, you know, the fact that, like, we can turn to these things, it's just, like... So great. You know, speaking of Dua Lipa, Pentatonix, the acapella group, released an EP called At Home, and it's just a bunch of covers they, like, recorded in quarantine. And they did a cover of Break My Heart, and... Oh, my God. Um, oh, my gosh. Break your <laughs> literally. Like, like I, Dua Lipa has just been on my playlist to make me feel better. So I fully understand where you're coming from. And... Yeah, Dua Lipa, Chromatica, and of course Blackpink, because they have songs on both Chromatica and with Dua Lipa, and I've been listening to those songs on repeat specifically. They're the first two songs on my playlist. (laughs) We love them. It's like, you need to find joy 
somewhere. I feel like I go between listening to really sad indie and disco. Yeah, I've like I've been on a Blackpink binge for the past month, which is wild because they only have like 14 songs. So like it's been a wild time, but like the past week I've been rediscovering a lot of other music that I actually enjoy and I just need to shout out uh like a queer black icon his name is Bronze Avery I've been listening to Retrospect his 2019 EP and like I just feel all the things Like, it's in, you know, it's like, what, 15 minutes, but the last song is called Goodbye. Oh my god, and it, uh, it's just so many feelings. And it's so gay, like, all his music is so gay. Anyway, I'm getting off track, but yeah, fully understand where you're coming from. We love the gay music. What else, other than the gay tunes, is bringing you joy? Oh my god, okay, so this is like low-key my ecology slash biology nerd coming out, but I read an ABC article called Australian Produce Only Sold at X Accountant's Old Fashioned Roadside Fruit and Veg Store, and when I saw this, I was just like, excuse me, and I read this right... What does that mean? Okay, that's a lot of words, but it's a story in ABC Rural. And basically, this guy used to be an accountant, and he was just like, you know, do I really like this? And, you know, he's like, do I like slaving away at a computer, tapping out numbers? I don't know what accountants do. My dad's an accountant. I still don't know. But Yeah, so is mine. I think it's a lot of spreadsheets. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, he was driving one day and saw that there was this roadside, you know, store for sale. Like, you know, a store that sold fruits and vegetables and produce. And he was like, fuck it, I'll buy it. So he bought it. And now he just sells locally sourced produce. And it's like, he... You know, he has seven, like, over 70 suppliers, and they range from actual farmers who do, like, the whole crops thing to, you know, people who grow stuff in their gardens, you know? Oh, my God. Right? I love that. Locally sourced is the way to go. COVID has shown us we need food security and embracing local produce and relying less on supply from overseas I think is a good way to go. Like, like, it's incredible. Like, this guy was just like, look, you know, this place used to be super successful. Like, back in the day, you know, it used to, you know, make millions of dollars. But then massive conglomerates like Coles and Woolies moved in. And then, you know, these establishments started losing a lot of business. But... Like, you know, we just talked about how much we hated corporations, and this is the section on joy. So I'm going to focus on the great stuff. Like, it's so amazing to me that this guy, like, not only supports the farmers and, you know, the mom and dad gardeners in his community, but, 
you know, his community relies on him for produce as well. Like, he's connecting all these people in his community, and I love that all of his produce is Australian, none of it's imported, it's all just, like, natural vegetation and crops, and I just... Oh my god, like, my ecology brain was going wild. I was just like, this is amazing. This is what I want to retire and do after I'm done saving the turtles. Oh, so yes, this is what has brought me joy this week. How beautiful. I bet there's a lot less waste as well in the way that he operates. Yeah, like, and it's also like, you know, he was just like, oh, people come in with a box and leave with it full of produce, and it's only $25. And I was like, are you kidding me? Oh my god. I love that. I love that. Because, you know, these supermarkets, like, they suck. They put so much pressure on farmers as well to meet these impossible aesthetic standards. When it comes to their fruit and veg, it has to all look perfect. It's just ridiculous oh my god that's such a great point like one of his like little i don't know what it called like i don't know like for showmen they call it gimmicks but like and like other people you call them bits i don't know but like one of his things like his pint like he has like reject piles so these are like pineapples that these conglomerates have been like, oh no, they're too small, they're too ugly, you know, like we don't want them. Oh my god! So yes, so, I love a bent banana and a crooked carrot. Right? How good! Like, like I knew you'd love that. Like this is just. It's so great because massive, massive, massive amounts of food waste aren't a result of people not eating. It's a result of massive grocery chains and food suppliers rejecting perfectly healthy, perfectly edible food and being like, on the basis of how it looks. And the fact that he's just like, that doesn't matter to me as long as it's healthy and nutritious and good for my community, I'm going to sell them. So I propose, I'm not sure where this is, but this is somewhere in Australia, and I think we should take a road trip and go and buy some of his three for two dollar reject pineapples. Yes, I'm here for some reject pineapple. That's the only kind of pineapple I want in my life. Literally. Uh, but yeah, that's what's brought me joy. It's called Everything Good, because everything about this is good. Uh, How beautiful. Truly. We'll put a link in the show notes so anyone who lives nearby can hit it up. And also hit us up. Send us photos of you at the shop. We'd love to see that. Yeah, and hit us up to let us know how you're feeling as well. Yes. How Are You Feeling is hosted and produced by us, Danny Stewart and Longol Burkina. Editing and sound design is by Danny Stewart and artwork by Indiana Johns.